Welcome back, everyone, to Polite Politics, episode 11. We have Jenny Tayer, Dan Karish, Dan Rosenfield joining us for what will be another wonderful look into the world of politics that we give to you in a polite way. Uh, let's start off just everybody. How are we doing? Jenny Taylor, let's start with you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Things are going as normal as they could be right now. Thank God no one has coronavirus and we're all just staying at home. Dan Rosenfield. Dan, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. Um, I just uh, got a new bandana um, to cover my nose and mouth per CDC guidelines. Got a couple compliments on it. Um, so, um, as much as I'd like to keep rocking it, um, maybe I should get something a little more, um, tighter, a little more, um, apt to, uh, health and safety guidelines, but it's, it's cool. It's, uh, stars and stripes. A little more form fitting, but definitely can't beat the style. Exactly. Dan Karish, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, today I'm celebrating one of the most under-celebrated holidays in American history. Today is the 245th anniversary of the Battle of Lexington, the commencement of the American Revolution. We would not be here today if it wasn't for April 19th, 1775. We want to get into, obviously, the big story of the day, which is COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic. It's not going away anytime soon, certainly. And it looks like New York is seeing a little bit of a reduction in cases. Andrew Cuomo, uh, the governor, has, has talked about things that are just kind of objectively positive news, and that's great to hear. So obviously there are still a lot of deaths. We're over, I believe, 34,000 now uh, for the United States in terms of deaths from the coronavirus pandemic. But it does seem that there are things that are getting better. President Trump has given this kind of guidelines as far as the country is reopening. I know we've seen Western states have their organizing groups, Southern states have theirs, and we are seeing little by little things start to begin. Jenny Tayer, as far as where we are on the spectrum of when we're started to now, how do you feel that we go going forward? I think right now it seems like there's some kind of feeling of a light being at the end of the tunnel now that the president and the White House have rolled out a plan for reopening the economy, a phased approach. And I know that Texas is going to be one of the first states to adopt that. Um, And what it looks like is it's going to be basically what's been happening for restaurants, which is, you know, you can get it delivered or you can have a pickup at the um, curb So it's going to be kind of weird. I think he's opening retail stores, but it's going to be kind of a curbside situation. So I think this is important, though, because it's a phased approach, just like things were rolled back initially to mitigate the spread of coronavirus. It's the same kind of we're going to slowly reopen. So I am hopeful, and I think a lot of people are, too. Definitely want to make sure that we that we take it safe and not too fast. Testing one of those barriers that we want to make sure that there's a ramp up in testing. Dan Rosenfield, I want to ask you that in terms of the ability of testing that we're seeing, how far along do you think we are and, and how much farther do we need to go? There is definitely a lot of work to do. Um, there's got to be a standardized approach, man. Um 
you know, you're looking at the DOD has their own way of testing people and, and standard of testing and qualification for testing. Um, the VA has their own, uh, certain states have their own. So um, I think, you know, while you ask about the, the quantity of testing, there's got to be a certain standard to say this is the, um, you know, population sample that needs to be tested. And after this many of uh, tests, we can, we can accurately show that something is declining. So a lot of work to do, work in progress. And so is that the balance, Dan, that needs to be struck, Dan Rosenfield, staying with you here for that, with the states having, you know, kind of what we talked about in weeks past, with the states deciding on their own and knowing for themselves what works best for their localities, what works best for them, we're taking a state's approach there. But when it comes from the testing, definitely having the federal top down in terms of the distribution of the testing. Do you feel like that's the best way to go? There has to be, um, there has to be that that centralized, federalized approach, um, direction from NIH, uh, Fauci and his team. Um, so uh, there is a consistent standard. Uh, I love my boys in Texas, but we're going a little crazy there, um, and we got to make sure that everyone is on the same page, so that when we do start having interstate commerce and interstate travel, that uh, there's a a certain level of safety that we can all have when we go from state to state well said yeah and and now that we've talked about just in terms of the reopening and tiers and the testing dan karish i want to throw it over to you and this is something that we'll then pose to kind of everybody in the group but when we look at that you know what kind of testing what kind of safety implementation is going to make people feel safe there was a new york post report uh, that just came out that six in ten people want to keep the shelter in place guidelines that we have right now they are very afraid and and rightly so that we are going to do this too early you know how do you calm people down and and what is it going to take to make people feel safe to go out and do these kinds of things because it's so personal to every single person yeah, you know, I think the right question to ask here is what is the acceptable amount of deaths or what is an acceptable death rate that we can have before we we begin to reopen the economy, before we can start going out in public? I think one of the interesting things with stay-at-home orders is that once they're lifted, you still have the ability to stay at home. You know, you're not all of a sudden forced outside of your home to go to the park, to go to stores or anything like that. You know, each individual in each family has the ability to keep themselves more at home to be more socially distant. I think moving forward, we'll still see a lot of this continuation of social distancing efforts. I think that um, people will want to be cautious before going out. You know, we don't want to see, uh, like in Florida and in Jacksonville, everyone going to a beach immediately as soon as the stay-at-home order is lifted, and then we see another reemergence and another spike in the, uh, in the trajectory. So there was something Stephen Moore said, uh, the economist, and I believe he's with Heritage as well, and he said that for every 1% in unemployment leads to about 10,000 deaths. What he's worried about is not just the virus, as you had mentioned, and how many people will die from that, but he also mentioned that he is very, very concerned about deaths from what he called economic deprivation and hopelessness. Yeah, and I think longer term we're 
in that same idea, kind of redefining a new meaning for depth, deaths of despair. You know, we typically apply that to the opioid crisis and drug usage, but now there's this kind of growing sense of despair among those who've been displaced by the pandemic. And that's something that we're going to need to address. You know, we have to be careful that even if we're flattening the curve now, we could see a tail end spike as, you know, not only the, the mental and the physical effects of self-isolation are taking their toll, you know, diets have worsened, people aren't exercising as much, there's lower uh, intensity and frequency of of getting exercise that we need. And beyond only coronavirus, after we lift these shutdown orders, we're going to have to address a lot of the comorbidities like obesity and hypertension um, that haven't appropriately been managed during this crisis. Not to mention things like substance abuse and addiction and, and things like that, suicide that we saw, because with the Great Recession, a lot of people lost jobs and ended up seeing a lot of those things. And the opioid crisis really spiked a lot during that time as we saw the effect that it had on various communities. But staying with you, Dan Karish, you want to talk about things that different industries can do better. Airlines, obviously, there's been talk about whether or not they'll be removing, not necessarily removing or not selling the middle seats in order to create more room on airplanes for that. Are there things that industries can do, like Jenny talked about also with takeout and and carry out and delivery to try to help give people a little bit more of a peace of mind? What can those industries do as we take away some of these restrictions or loosen some of the restrictions because it's entirely possible that when the restrictions loosen, these people still might not want to go fly. They might not want to go to to restaurants. They might not want to do these things. Are there things that these industries can be doing now to be more proactive and help give people a little bit more of a sense of security? Yeah, I think airlines will be the litmus test for seeing how ready Americans are to resume some semblance of a post-crisis normal lifestyle. There's a strong dichotomy between business travel and leisure travel, determining both within organizations and within families what is a necessity and what is a luxury. I think for airlines specifically, in order to regain the financial stability and to recover even with the federal bailout, it will be incumbent upon them to innovate. Airlines, not only recently but before the pandemic, were the targets of many broad-based political attacks. Long-term recovery likely will require, just on the micro level, new methods of simply cleaning planes, and on the macro level, there'll be reconsiderations for seating arrangements, for flight durations, and even really, on the more macro level, addressing environmental and fuel concerns. For the economy and for industries more broadly, our conflict with China is reaching a momentary climax. Beijing has deepened America's dependence on Chinese-made goods. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has increased the distrust in China that's held by the country, held by policymakers, and by industry leaders. So maybe one possible avenue for innovation by American companies could center around some sort of decoupling of our dependence on China. At what point would y'all feel more safe, more secure being in a large crowd? Let's just say, as an example, 100 people um, or more. So, Jenny, you know, kind of to pose it to you first, you know, at what point would you need a vaccine to be available before you have, you know, are, are in a room full of that, like a convention or, you know, something like that? You know, what, what would it take for you to feel comfortable, uh, you know, in, in a setting that large? I think that... Unfortunately, it may take the science um, being consistent. I see a lot of um, confusing reports. I see, you know, we spoke about, oh, well, you could go on a plane. Maybe no one's in the middle seat. You'll have some distance from the person next to you. But then I see that the AMA has a study that the um, virus could travel 26 feet. 
could linger in the air. That's um, something that, you know, uh, we have with measles. Measles can hang out in the air for an extremely long time. Um, and so I just have concern because, you know, we go back and forth. Does social distancing even work? Um, people are saying, well, Sweden's a model that they haven't really implemented um, widespread social distancing. Really only they've told the populations at risk and the elderly to stay at home. And so I just, I just question, is it social distancing that's working? Um, are we basing it off of things that, um, you know, we truly understand the virus, how it spreads? Um, how many people have it in the U.S., how many people have, have had it, um, how many people carry the antibody for it, didn't even have symptoms. Um, I just have a lot of questions, and I don't know if any of them have consistent answers. And so I just, I, I just don't know, and I don't think a lot of people know. Um, and unfortunately... Um, you know, we've been locked up for a long time and we don't know if that worked. So I, I just, I feel very lost in some of these studies and I think the American people feel that way too. Now, just to clarify with Sweden, for example, we have to take into account some of the uh, differences between our country and Sweden. So they're going for a herd immunity approach, which is obviously different than ours. Now, their their death toll is far higher than that of their Nordic, you know, and Scandinavian neighbors. That's right. It is. But it's also different from other EU countries. So like France, Spain, Italy, um, that's also something that people are comparing it to. I think there are so many differences between a Sweden and, and the approaches that they're using. Certainly, they are trying to isolate the elderly, but uh, I think over 1,500 people have died. This is so far, and they are trying that approach. Interestingly enough, what they are doing, at least from from as what you said, their economy, while maybe not necessarily buzzing, they're, they're certainly not shutting it all down as, as we have done with much of ours. So what they're doing is much more manageable over the long term. So that certainly is true. But there is a lot of, of anger, certainly among some, some Swedes that I know, because it feels like they are basically willing to risk lives for the economy and then we'll see obviously in the future you know whether that bears out and and the anger that um, results from it I did want to ask you you know just as a follow-up question you know you said that you weren't sure whether kind of shutting ourselves in has really worked you know kind of what do you mean by that because I think the social distancing clearly you know we're seeing so many infections and so many deaths I mean clearly this has saved lives no I don't think it's so clear because we don't know, um, we just don't know enough about the virus itself and we don't know if um, our model is, is the right model. We don't know because we haven't tested a majority of our people. Now I know we're ramping up testing according to the Trump administration um, and I still have questions as to the accuracy of the testing. Um, I know that the antibody tests are um, extremely accurate, but there are conflicting reports as to the accuracy of the initial coronavirus active virus uh, test. 
But when the administration said that we were looking at potentially 100 to 200,000 deaths if we didn't take social distancing seriously, and those guidelines, you know, that was the president, that was Dr. Fauci, those were the medical experts, as well as the administration kind of advocating this because we were looking at, I mean, obviously 34,000 Americans is, is a serious number, but 100 to 200,000 is is just simply unthinkable for, for something like this. You know, isn't isn't that clear that what we're now seeing is, you know, the, the modeling is completely different now? Right. And when I, you know, I also want to bring in one point that I found um, when looking into the CARES Act um, is that there is an incentive for reporting COVID patients, for hospitals to report them. And that means that someone who comes in for, say, they are um, going into a diabetic coma, for example, they have some kind of condition or they have uh, something that is not COVID, um, but then they test positive for the virus, um, they are counted as a COVID-19 patient in the case counts. And the incentive for reporting that, the secondary diagnosis is what they call it, the incentive is that they receive um, a higher percentage, an additional percentage, I believe it's 15%, more funding from the CARES Act, the hospitals. When I found that, I started to question our numbers. We'll move on to to Dan Rosenfield uh, for Dan. At what point would you feel comfortable kind of going out into more social situations with people, you know, crowds of over 100, you know, maybe 1,000, if whether it's a concert or a sporting event when those kind of seem to have a little more gatherings? Yeah, I'm a total follower. So uh, if I was asked to hang out with someone, I totally would. No. Um, I think I, uh, unfortunately, um, I want to see other gatherings happen and then see the data before uh, I went out. You know, I would want to see, oh, hey, people are having gatherings of 20, 30, then 100, and things are looking pretty chill. And then I would say, all right, you know, um, I'll go out. But I, I think hopefully as a germaphobe, uh, I appreciate this kind of change in mentality to us being just in general more cautious of how we're interacting with people and how we're looking at, um, you know, touching surfaces and, and just an overall cultural mindset that I think you have, say, in Japan, which is just a very uh, clean country. And they wear masks there all the time, just in general, even before this pandemic started. So it's definitely something that they were much more cautious of. I think SARS, as well as, as things that have happened in the past, have led them to to become much more thoughtful about how they do it. That's a really great you know approach there, Dan Rosenfield, because you're thinking about hopefully these are changes that people now integrate into just their everyday lives as, as regards hygiene and other things like that. And I think obviously the wait and see approach, I think, is is the right one. That's how I will probably intend to play it. I don't think I'm going to go into you know a baseball game or something like that if, if until there is a vaccine. That's something that I think is a leap too far for me. I want to go ahead and, and segue now to the Veep stakes as Joe Biden now has some some people coalescing behind him. He had Elizabeth Warren come out and endorse him. He had President Obama obviously come out and endorse him. So it now seems that he is getting the endorsement of the, of these people on on both the kind of Democratic establishment and some figures on the left. But there are some people, AOC, you know, there were not uh, Bernie Sanders did endorse him as well. So we'll see if, if that is able to move his supporters in one way or the other. But I want to get into the veep stakes, the veep stakes of, of Joe Biden's 
VP choice. Now, he has pledged that he will pick a woman. I'd like to go around and say who you maybe think it could be or just general thoughts on his vice presidential pick. So, Dan Karras, we will start with you. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know, kind of setting the landscape for this, something that I've been thinking about is that uh, Biden's selection of a running mate is more important now as the country has seen with this crisis that we need these highly qualified and effective leaders at every level. You know, we look at what happened uh, to Boris Johnson when he was sick. And with this in mind, who would be next to step up should anything happen to Joe Biden, Donald Trump, whoever our next president is? So when we look at the actual candidates for Biden's running mate, we're kind of in this unusual position where, you know, for electoral and political reasons, he pledged to only choose a woman as his running mate. But due to the effects of the, the ongoing pandemic, we just don't have the same opportunities to vet candidates that we typically would in a normal election cycle. You know, that said, there's this kind of similar opportunity for non-national candidates, like governors, for example, to demonstrate their national leadership in this crisis. And you know, if you look, for example, at uh, the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, who delivered the State of the Union response and whose name has been floated a lot as a potential running mate, she just hasn't really risen to the occasion under this national spotlight. Many of her edicts are uh, contradictory, many are capricious, and it's given rise to this whole liberate Michigan movement. So that really leaves, in my mind, only Senators Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, both of whom were vetted during their respective presidential campaigns. And I think that uh, Senator Klobuchar of Minnesota is particularly interesting. Not only uh, was her margin of of the not only was the margin of victory in Minnesota for Hillary Clinton pretty narrow, I think it was something like one and a half percent in 2016, um, but Senator Klobuchar is seen less as an ideologue and more of as a thoughtful, thorough leader. You know, she ex has experience on uh, the Joint Economic Committee, on the Agricultural Committee, and the Commerce Committee, uh, and I think that kind of checks a lot of boxes that Joe Biden is looking for in a running mate. It's interesting because I think you, you can look at VPs as somebody who can contrast with somebody as a Pence did with Trump or somebody who is more in line with somebody like, a, a you know, Kane was with Clinton. So I think there, there are things, do they match up? And I think Amy Klobuchar is much more of a, of a match, very similar in scope uh, to a Joe Biden because they both make deals. They, they work across the aisle, both, you know, kind of blue collar, you know, workers, you know, things like that. Both have kind of the folksy, obviously, you know, with, with Joe Biden from Scranton, Pennsylvania. And you look at uh, Klobuchar, you know, from, from Minnesota, where you have that Midwest background and appeal. So something very, very interesting there that you mentioned. I think it's interesting for Whitmer because Whitmer's first round of shelter in place was actually widely received by many Republicans and people on the right. But her second round, as you said, was seen as much more capricious and has been um, criticized by uh, by many, as we've seen now with the protests and uh, the president responding with, you know, kind of liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia. Dan Rosenfield, over to you. Your thoughts on the Veep Stakes. You know, my mother uh, always says that she knows everything about politics and she could run the country. So uh, I think my first choice would definitely be my mother, as well as the White House kitchen would produce a lot of great baked goods. Um, but I, I think in the wake of coronavirus, people are looking, um, as Dan said, with governors, even more locally, uh, the police and the fire who are providing that first line response. Um, and those are led by some really amazing female mayors. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden is this uh, statesman of over multiple decades from Delaware. Uh, but you have some uh, Democratic mayors of some of America's largest cities that come from community organizing backgrounds that Joe Biden does not have, um, that are, are, are very engaging, that someone like 
that, that follow this same persona, same background as Barack Obama. So, uh, you know, Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago or um, Mayor Bottoms of some city, it's in Georgia, I don't remember the name, uh, Noah, you may know it, it's a small town uh, called Atlanta, Georgia, or uh, uh, Mayor Breed in, in San Francisco. So um, I think people are looking more and more for leaders and, and indicative of Mayor Pete. People want those people who have the community background, who uh, have a, a know how to organize um, and really understand the struggles that your national politicians really don't understand. One more follow-up your way, Dan Rosenfield. When you're talking about these mayors, Mayor Pete certainly did not have a large national ID and then kind of burst onto the scene through the primary. Is it do you think that Joe Biden would take a risk of having somebody who doesn't have that large national following? Because as Dan Carter said, we're, we're not really having the time to vet some of these candidates. Um, I think you're going to have people who will emerge and people are really starting to pay attention more to the importance of their mayors and their governors. Someone like Sarah Palin, I mean, you consistently look at the past few elections and and some of the most popular vice presidents, people had no clue who they were until they were announced. Sarah Palin, you know, who, some lady in Alaska, and now she is a pop culture icon who even today, wherever she goes, can get a following. Um, uh, so uh, Paul Ryan wasn't really too popular of a person, then he became a vice president, vice presidential candidate, and, and now he is um, an icon who I have a Facebook profile picture with multiple hundreds of likes. So I think it's just indicative that um, the vice presidential candidate really should just kind of have this unique personality, unique background that can relate with people, um, and uh, they will balance out the experience and the prestige and the background and the expertise of your presidential candidate like Mr. Biden. So you would say in terms, it's it's about more the contrast than it is having somebody who's similar. Absolutely. I think if Joe Biden gets someone who's very similar to him, uh, say a Liz Warren or uh, a very seasoned, experienced statesman type, um, especially from the Northeast where Biden represented, um, then, then yeah, that's going to be uh, no good. But if you have someone who's representing a sub, you know, from a southern state, a major metropolitan area, a community organizing background, um, like Mayor Bottoms of the great city of Atlanta, Georgia, then um, you're going to have uh, a successful presidential candidate campaign team. And I, I think that anyone who becomes nominated as the vice president for Joe Biden's uh, campaign is instantly elevated as the heir apparent following a potential Biden. Uh, presidency or even in 2024. So the the selection by Biden's campaign of a running mate, I think is very indicative and will be very insightful into what the priorities of the uh, Democratic Party are for the next decade or two, depending on if they pick more of an establishment or more of a younger progressive uh, person from the, the further wings of the party. Jenny, I'll throw it over to you just kind of to, to pick up on, on what Dan Karish said. Do you think that the vice presidential pick will be somebody who is seen as a bridge between the establishment and maybe the future of, of where the Democratic Party sees the left? Do you think that's that's where they're going to go? Or do you think they'll, they'll make that decision independent of that uh, with whatever Joe Biden feels comfortable with? I think that would be the wise choice. However, I don't think that would be the direction that 
Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden is looking to go in. I see the Stacey Abrams piece of the puzzle fitting in. I think she could be his pick. She said she would be, um, you know, happy to take that on. However, I would suggest that um, Joe Biden take a look at Michigan rep Karen Whitsett. I think she is a very interesting... I know, I know I'm getting a lot of weird faces right now because it's kind of uh, out of left field. Um, She recently uh, came out, she was actually sitting in the White House last week speaking directly with the president as someone who recovered from COVID-19 and has credited President Trump and his administration for allowing um, patients to access hydroxychloroquine And she's advocating for the people of Michigan to have greater access. And she is actually creating a bridge between both parties. I think she's doing an incredible job. Um, She's become a much more prominent name out there. Um, Now that the president has applauded her, he even said last week, you know, she has um, a pre-existing condition, which put her in a very vulnerable position. Um, She has Lyme disease, and the president said, you know, call in the White House doctor. I would like him to see her, and um, it's it's an incredible uh, situation that we're seeing. Um, It's coming to the table and wanting to work on solutions for the American people, and that's exactly the kind of administration that Joe Biden um, should be should be promoting, and that could be a really great strategy for him. I don't see him taking that uh, advice, um, and I don't know if he's even considering her, um, but I think it's also just the idea, let's put certain things aside. This is not a political situation, curing people from this disease or trying to mitigate its spread, um, and I think that could work in a lot of other situations. Interesting. I think, speaking of along the lines of somebody who is pragmatic. I think somebody who maybe isn't getting enough attention and frankly, I don't even, she might not even be interested in presidential politics or serving in an administration. I think she's probably very happy with where she is serving the great state of Arizona, but I believe cinema might be an interesting choice because she works with both parties as well. So I think she is you know, not only obviously, you know, a, a woman, but she definitely goes more to the Western states and Arizona, which you know, is is a battleground, I think, in some ways, or at least is more going towards uh, purple. Obviously, she she did win that Senate race. And I think that could be an interesting pick if Biden wants to go that way, because she is she doesn't really fit in an ideological box. She works with people and wants to obviously help the state of Arizona, wants to help Americans, regardless of whether that is. And she's not afraid to speak her mind. So I think that that would be an interesting pick uh, for Joe Biden if he decides to go that route. I think Stacey Abrams would also be an interesting choice. Definitely, obviously, has experience as the uh, you know in the state legislature of Georgia came incredibly close to winning the governorship of the state of Georgia. So that would give Joe Biden an interesting contrast and I think an interesting bridge because I think she would be that kind of bridge to pick up the mantle perhaps of where we've seen some movement on the left. Uh, While I don't think she's got some kind of two extreme positions, I think it would be very interesting to see how she works with moderates because I don't think she 
reached out that olive branch during her race, so I, I disagree with her electoral strategy, although it did nearly work. want to go ahead and move on to some positive, uplifting stories of the week. There was an English World War II veteran. He was walking laps in his garden. It's an 82-foot garden. 99-year-old Tom Moore, and he was doing this to raise money for the National Health Service. He initially set a fundraising target of just 1,000 pounds, and he started his walks on April 6th, he has now walked 100 lengths by his 100th birthday on April 30th. Guys, he has raised over $3.3 million for the National Health Service, and it only took one week, which is uh, his daughter was the one who set up the page for him. Just incredible. A 99-year-old is basically every day just, just walking his garden and doing so for charity. And, and again, a, a World War II veteran, just a really, really cool thing. And then another thing that raised charity there was uh, something called One World Together at Home, a two-hour broadcast of music, comedy, and stories celebrating those on the front lines of the pandemic. A lot of contributors, Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, Paul McCartney, The Rolling Stones, Beyonce, Oprah. You had Elton John, Jennifer Lopez, Stevie Wonder, David Beckham, Michelle Obama, Laura Bush, uh, Celine Dion, Billie Eilish, Bill Gates, dozens of others, and it raised $128 million dollars for uh for those on the front lines and obviously fighting the pandemic so pretty cool stuff there we'll finish up with as we always do our final thoughts on the week that was and the week to come jenny tear we'll start with you final thoughts oh gosh well not much going on over here so uh my thoughts are pretty similar but just trying to stay sane during these times and do things that keep myself busy and suggesting others do too, you know, going outside as much as you can, um, going on walks, doing um, things that involve moving your body, you know, doing something, learning something new, a new skill, exercising your mind. And um, I think that we're going to start to see some signs of hope this week um, as we move towards reopening the economy in some states. And hope is exactly what we need right now. I think that would be great. And obviously, yeah, get some exercise, get some get some sun, but do so in a way that is obviously both safe and responsible. Dan Rosenfield, over to you. Really just uh, enjoying uh, taking life a little bit slower um, as uh, social engagements and, and various events um are uh, ceasing. This week would have been uh, Texas A&M's annual alumni reunion that is all across the world. Um, and uh, the DC chapter had was going to have several hundred people. Congressman Will Hurd was going to speak. And unfortunately, um, thousands of Aggies across the world are going to be doing this virtually. So that will be the first time and, and it'll be really interesting um, and really honored to take a part in that. But um, excited for the coming days. Dan Karish. Final thoughts on the week that was and the week to come. Well, one of the things I'm looking forward to most in the week to come is Google Hangouts is coming out with a gallery mode to compete with Zoom. So now, rather than seeing only one individual at a time, you have the opportunity to see everyone that you're having a meeting with. And I think that's that's an absolute game changer. But looking back at the week that was, you know, one of the things that I mentioned on last week's podcast was that we're with the retreat of uh, some of the U.S. Navy ships and we're seeing some problems in the 5th and 7th Fleet in terms of coronavirus. This past week, we saw a lot of foreign powers and a lot of adversaries kind of testing the U.S. defenses. We saw um, between Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, North Korea, I believe on Tuesday, launched some ground cruise missiles and some air-to-air missiles. On Wednesday, we saw some uh, Russian Air Force jets just a week after previously uh, having jets intercepted off of the coast of Alaska. This past Wednesday, we saw uh, another Russian patrol aircraft 
go within, I think it's 25 feet of a U.S. Navy aircraft. And we also saw um, some Iran, some of Iran's naval ships coming close and harassing some uh, U.S. Navy ships. So I think something to keep tracking over the coming weeks is how the U.S. is preparing itself militarily against some of our foreign adversaries um, and ramping up readiness uh, and, and patrols in a lot of these more hostile waters. Right, you are definitely need to make sure that we stay strong abroad, especially now with this pandemic is, is threatening some of those different things to protect our national interests. Also want to note that today, I believe, is the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, Timothy McVeigh, uh, who uh, destroyed a, uh, a building there, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, 168 people dead and uh, more than 500 injured. And so that is, again, I believe the deadliest act of domestic terrorism on American soil uh, still to this day. And that was April 19, 1995. So again, to the families of those victims, there was obviously going to be a memorial today to mark that this was the 25th anniversary, and that obviously will not be happening with social distancing. But we want to obviously say that we're thinking about those families and, and the families of those affected, um, you know, the injured and, and those that we lost. For Dan Karish, Dan Rosenfield, Jenny Tayer, and myself, Noah Niederhofer, want to thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Polite Politics. We'll see you next time.